This is Riddles in the Dark Digest co-host Trish Lambert. And no, this is not a Riddles in the Dark Digest episode. This is Riddles in the Dark episode 16. I'm introducing a little bit of bonus material before the actual episode itself starts. It's a little behind-the-scenes action that Corey and I had with the Netmoot prior to starting the episode. We could not figure out what the riddle should be. Corey explains the trouble he was having, and so he opened up the question to the Netmoot, the folks who had uh, tuned in to listen live and who could interact with Corey and I uh, via the chat room on the Netmoot so they could type in their questions and, and ideas. So you'll see sort of how one of these riddles got formed, and hopefully that will uh, increase your enjoyment of the episode to follow. If, on the other hand, you don't want to bother with how the riddle got formed, at around minute 17 or so, the episode itself starts. So happy listening, and take care. Um, okay, so as so like I said, we're trying. I'm trying. You know, the, the main issue, and one of the big questions, is what they seem to be doing with the Azog character. And of course, you know, we're picking up here on stuff that we've talked about before, especially back when we were looking at Thor and Thran and Thorin in the very first three episodes that we did. Um, so. Um, so anyway, so we're working on uh, uh, trying to figure out how to frame. Uh, I would like to do an Azog focused, um, uh, an Azog focused uh, uh, question prediction question. But I, every time I do it, I keep ending. I, I keep drifting towards the Battle of Five Armies, and we don't want to have a, a, a prediction question which is explicitly about the Battle of Five Armies because, of course, that's not going to be resolved until 2014. Uh, and uh, we really want to keep our questions focused on the first film for now. So, anyway, that's the uh, uh, that's the that's the sort of the issue that uh, Dave and I have been working through here. What do you guys think? Any suggestions from uh, from those from our collaborators who are here with us here this morning? Okay. Okay, yeah. So uh, uh, Trish had one suggestion, which was basically to have the prediction question be about the um, have have the question be about when we first will see goblins or orcs in the first movie. So that, of course, uh, resoundingly makes it a first movie question, which is which is very safe. Um, and uh, the options that Trish was thinking of were things like: are, you know, is the first time we're going to see them in the encounter in the Misty Mountains? That would, of course, be our book answer. Um, are we going to see uh, previews of them at the beginning of the film? Are we going to see them hunting Thorn and company? Are we going to see them, uh, you know, before or after Rivendell? Are we going to see them uh, in other circumstances, like around Dol Guldur uh, with Gandalf or something like that? Um, Yana, I I kind of like a Goblin Town focused question um, because, of course, that's you know from a book perspective, that's sort of the, that's sort of a big question. Um, I do, I do really kind of like that. Um, <laughs> and Brandon wants to do. Will we see? Uh, will we see them in an Azanul Bazaar flashback first? Yes, uh, possibly, possibly. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I still doubt it, but you know, um, maybe, maybe. I mean, you know, some of the things that are emerging have made me more hopeful for some reference to Azanul Bazaar than before. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. See, Brandon, that's the thing is that, like, you know, new evidence has, has, has been emerging. Um, so, uh, so yeah, let's, so let's look at the Goblin Town thing. If we do Goblin Town, Yana, I do like that idea. 
So if we have if we have a four option question, so we've been really stymied with this one. It's one of the reasons I skipped the goblins in the first place. Um, but uh, we figured we just can't skip them any further. We can't because the further we get along, you know, we've been kind of marching along here through the plot, going up to Bjorn and then up into Mirkwood and the spiders in the next few sessions. Uh, and so I didn't want to. You know, I, eventually it's going to be silly to have to jump back and do the goblins. So we might as well do them now. Okay, that's true, Yana. It could be focused on the Great Goblin himself. Yeah, see, exactly. Brent, that's what I was thinking. Brent was saying, w- what about, you know, will we see Azog's death in a flashback? Um, but that could also bear on the Battle of Five Armies. Exactly. See, that's, it's, that, that's exactly the kind of thing that I kept wanting to do is any question, I think, which really tries to sort of pinpoint the ultimate trajectory of Azog's character as it's going to be depicted in the film. That has to incorporate, at least as an option, the Battle of Five Armies. So it's tricky. Um, yeah, Trish, I was thinking about the Bulls and the Bulg and Azog question, um, and sort of the roles that they might play. Um, yeah, Daniel, I'm thinking in exactly those terms. Dan, uh, Daniel says, I wonder how they will differentiate between the Goblin leaders, the Great Goblin, Azog, and Bulg. Will they all be introduced separately? Will the Great Goblin, will we see the Great Goblin and Bulg in Goblin Town? Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's ex- actually, I think, one, to me, one of the big questions, because we do have a whole lot of orc chieftains running around. I mean, if we have those three characters as separate characters, it's not that it's not possible for them to do that, but, um, but it does seem like an awful lot of orc chieftains. Um, and that we, so we could, I think, do a prediction, uh, out of that. Um, and yeah, Sandra asks a very sensible question, uh, which I meant to check. Can someone check in IMDb, um, what we have for the cast list? Um, we have, we, I know there's a cast, there's a, there's, there's an actor for the Great Goblin. Um, is there, the, do, do we have separate Azog and Bolg actors? Is that, is that, does that exist in IMDb? Uh, somebody, can somebody look that up for me here? Um, yeah, Brandon, it might be good to think about sort of more broadly about how Goblin Town will be depicted. Um, yeah, and we can really kind of extend that kind of politically to the Great Goblin. Uh, because of course, Goblin, you know, the Goblin Town incident, this is sort of the, uh, this is the, the, it's not, even in The Hobbit, it's not depicted as the absolute center of Goblin culture, of course, but, um, but, but anyway, I mean, it's certainly the center point of the story as we're going through. Okay, yes, Tim confirms that both Bolg and Azog have different actors. That's what I had thought I had remembered. Um, yep, yep, Sandra confirms that too. Okay, so we do have the three of them appearing. The question is exactly sort of what roles they're going to be in. Yeah, okay, so we can't, so, so really there's no question of the identification of them. This was something that, you know, Dave and I were talking about a long time ago before, uh, which was before some of this uh, information was out, because um, it seemed likely then, and still seems plausible, uh, that it seems like it might be a good idea uh, to elide some of those figures. Um, uh, excellent. Daniel has provided a link to the uh, Tolkien Gateway um, entry on the Hobbit film's confirmed cast. Um, shout out to the Tolkien Gateway. They do excellent work over there. Um, so yeah, that's very good. Thanks for that, Daniel. Um, and that's true. Uh, you know, Sandra makes a good point about that. That um, Barry Humphreys, yeah, is the most 
well, the, the one who plays the Goblin King is the best known of the actors. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, I would say, that his, you know, that it means that his role is going to be is going to be larger than the rest of them. Um, but it certainly it does suggest that um, it does suggest that there are going to be that he's going to have a significant role. Um, you know, I mean, just as like you're not going to cast Stephen Fry as the mayor of Lake Town and then, you know, r- radically reduce the part of the mayor of Lake Town and make him a bit character. Um, so, again, you know, th- there there are some ways, of course, in which castings like that can, uh, you know, do certainly give uh, some information. Um, yeah, Tim's pointing out that, uh, Danny, you don't have uh, Azog here uh, on the confirmed casting. Do you have information about that, Daniel? Um, is there a reason that you guys have left Azog off here? Um, that is an interesting point, Tim. I was actually just looking through that there myself, because I hadn't been looking at this uh, at this particular page here. Uh, let's see. Oh, you're saying uh, Humphreys was, was initially cast as Azog. Um, yeah, and it's true, as Sandra points out, Humphreys is comical, um, which also at least potentially provides a clue. Um, all right, well, let's see. Hmm. Hmm. Gosh, this is a this is a mess here. As the information that we have on this is a mess. That is. Um, Right. Okay. Right. It's right. Conan Stevens was initially cast as Azog, but was switched to Bolg. So, do we have, uh, do we have a confirmed Azog still? Yeah. Sandra says that IMDb does have one. Let's see. Trish, I'm gonna. Can I pass off to you here for a second, and then you you guys continue working on. See if we can. Uh, to, see if we can continue to massage a prediction question out of this. Okay. Cool. You good? Yeah. Awesome. All right. Yeah, nothing like handing off like a really easy task, huh? <laughs> now, one thing I do notice, by the way, you guys may have seen, I was just looking at IMDb and I see that Barry Humphreys is actually listed in both the first and second films. So that brings up something about, for me, you know, how is the Great Goblin or the Goblins going to be, uh, you know, I would think, because in the book he gets killed in the mountains, right? And then that's the end of the Great Goblin. So, I don't know. Does that prompt anything for for questions? Yeah, Sandra, you make a really good point about IMDb not necessarily being um, trustworthy, and Owen's saying the same thing. Oh, good. Yeah. So, Tim, you're going to go. You're going to go look at Twitter to see if Manu Bennett's got anything to say. How will Goblin Town incident be portrayed? Yeah, you know, John. I'm I'm saying your name right, or Yana. Um, how will he says I've already posted this? How will Goblin Town incident be portrayed, and will the Great Goblin die, and how? Especially since I'm seeing Barry Humphreys now in both the two films, and yeah, Daniel, you're right. IMDb. I keep going back to IMDb. This is my biggest problem. Is I I want to you know I'm like grabbing at straws. I want to hold on to some of this stuff as as count honorable, but it's probably not. We're supposed to be first movie related is plus I'm still fearful of the goblin conflation problem. Hmm, yeah, Brandon. I well, you know these characterizations I keep referring to. Um, it, it, and Sophia Gross, I think, is on here uh, with us today. She tipped me off to these characterizations, which were first uh, published supposedly from Warner Brothers on a German site, and then somebody at the One Ring dot net. Uh, uh, translated them into English. And, um, uh, oh, that's interesting, Owen. John Rawls cast as Azog in The Hobbit. Is that new? 
What's the date on that? Um, okay, so let's see. So I'm missing a Sandra. Yeah, so Sandra's is saying that with Dale being such a huge set, there might be a huge amount of backstory that might go over all three films, like, you know, Boromir appeared in all three, Lord of the Rings. So, yeah, so that could actually explain some appearances in some of the other films. Um Brandon, we could ask if the Great Goblin survives the Goblin Titan incident, but that's more of a conundrum for the Digest. You know how Dave and I ask yes-no questions. Um, so, yeah, you know, maybe we want to hold on to that one. You might want to remind me of that, Brandon, when we're, you know, a couple of weeks from now where we're doing the Digest for this one. Um, one of the things that the characterizations, and, you know, as much as, as Corey doesn't want to, you know, he's questioning these, let me give you guys the, hold on here, let me give you the... Oh, here it is. Um, what I'm talking about as far as the, um, I think this will get to all of you. Uh, that, what I just sent you is a, is a link to the OneRing.net board where somebody has translated what was released on a German board in German. This supposedly has come from Warner Brothers, which is the characterizations of all these different characters. Now, there's more than just the orcs and goblins in here, but there are orcs and goblins characterized in here. And one of the things that really came out to me was that the orcs and the goblins are really held as two separate sorts of entities in the way they're characterized. The goblins are kind of like scavengers, um, you know, like lower class, I suppose. And the orcs are really being characterized as, as, um, soldiers and, and, you know, uh, cruel taskmasters, that kind of thing. Oh, are they old Sandra? Did they come out? Did they come out a while ago? Okay. Cause it's, it's been make, it's been kind of, there's been a kerfuffle about that. Um, interesting. They called the great goblin, the Goblin. I know. They called... Oh, when they first announced Barry Humphrey. Well, they called him the Goblin King because that's... Yeah, that's right. They did. I remember that because I remember thinking there was a change. Well, yeah, Brandon, about the... You know, we could talk about... Does the... You know, maybe we could come up with four options around what happens to the Great Goblin. You know, A, the book answer was he gets killed in the mountains. B, he's wounded but survives and, you know shows up some other way and then we'd have to come up with two other options. That could be, that could be something that, cause I know Corey said he liked the idea of being around. Oh, are you back? I am back. Yes. Well, uh, I think Dave's here too. Okay. Let me, before you turn me off, <laughs> Yep. No um, I did share the description. I did share the, the description right. URL, you know, with folks. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then Brandon actually came up with, what, how about we ask if the Great Goblin survives? So what happens to the Great Goblin could be our question. Book answer would be he dies in the mountains. And then there's three other options. One, he's wounded and then shows up again or something like that. So that's how far we've gotten. Yeah, that's 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 the direction that I was thinking, too. I think that we should keep the, 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 the question sort of Goblin Town incident focused. And the Great Goblin does seem uh, like a like a really good place to focus that. Um, so. So, yeah. So, as you say, it's a question of coming up with with four options. Right. Um, well, of course. All right. There are a couple things that we can do. Of course, we know that Mark, um, the Mark answer is he dies. Right. So, right the, <laughs> option A is always the easy one, right? So option A is Gandalf kills the Great Goblin. Option two could be uh, Thorin kills the Great Goblin. Um, you know, basically that the Great Goblin is killed, but it's not by Gandalf. And so therefore becomes part of the, you know, like dwarf goblin grudge match thing. 
uh, option C could be that the Great Goblin escapes uh, and sort of it, to become, a, you know, a kind of a more recurring villain uh, in the movie system. And option D could be something. Else. Bilbo kills um, him. That's what Yana suggested. That's really yeah, unlikely, you know, but actually, it could. could. It is unlikely. I was kind of thinking that. So maybe we have like three options with his dying. See, this is like what we did with the Eagles question, right? With the Eagles question, we had three options, um, which were all like the Eagles carry them away. The question is only to where. Uh, and then the fourth option of the Eagles don't carry them away. Something else happens. Um, and so basically we would be following that model. If we think it prohibitively likely that the Goblin King uh, is in fact killed, we could do the same thing. Like, okay, he's going to die, but uh, how is he going to die? Right. Uh, and, uh, or, or option D, you know, is he not going to die and is something else, is he going to, is he going to live on? Um, uh, by the way, Dave appears to, to completely it. disapprove of this question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see. Let's see. Okay, so Dave, you totally disapprove of this, uh, what you call thoroughly uncontroversial question? I don't know. I didn't say I thoroughly, I didn't say I completely disapprove, but it's more I just, I really doubt they're going to change this. I think the, I think the IMDB listing is a canard. Um, um, like, I've heard, I feel like more knowledgeable people like Father Roderick and Wondering.net people say that in general, they, they, that, IMDB errs on the side of inclusiveness. Right. So if they know an actor's in films, they're not really sure where which films specifically they're in. You know, like uh, um, if they haven't been given specific delineation, they'll just list them on all the films. Right. So um, uh, I, I'm I'm I, I I don't think I think the I think it's highly unlikely he'll be a recurring villain. I think it's more you know more likely that the recurring Goblin Town villain is going to be Polk. Because it looks like Bold's going to be there. Okay. Okay. Based All on right. the descriptions. Um, uh, anyway, All right. Well, if we take this uh, seriously. Well, then let let's do that. Then I think we could construct it then the way that we were talking. I have the three different killing the great goblin options, and uh, and then option D can be you know the what Dave considers very unlikely that he will survive uh, option. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. Well, that'll work. And welcome back to another episode of Riddles in the Dark, brought to you by the Mythgard Institute and the Tolkien Professor and Middle Earth Network Radio. This episode, we will be talking about goblins and orcs, finally. Um, this is something that's been looming, especially with the release of the, uh, the, the, the now infamous German character descriptions that have been published on the internet. And I think there's a lot of questions around, um, uh, how will the goblins and orcs be portrayed? Will they be similar to the way they're portrayed in the Lord of the Rings films, but also on specific goblin and orc characters, something that they didn't really explore much in the Lord of the Rings films, developing individual goblin and orc characters. So we're really excited to discuss this. We've got a wonderful live audience here already that have been helping us um, um, uh, edit our questions. So we're ready to get started. Uh, I'm Dave Kale, the co-host, and with me, as always, is the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson. Okay, good morning. So as always, we want to start off with sort of basically assessing what we know 
from the book. So, you know, this is, of course, where, where you know, these questions always begin. Um, what kind of information do we have? What it really is the depiction of the, what role do the goblins play in the books? And to, to that, I would say there are two real answers to that question, that is, of the role that the goblins play in The Hobbit. Um, the first role they play is much simpler, and then it, as so much in The Hobbit does, it gets bigger as you get towards the end. Um, the first and major incident, of course, is the encounter in Goblin Town when uh, Bilbo and the dwarves and not Gandalf are captured and taken down by the goblins, and then Gandalf breaks in, kills, you know, he follows them down in secret and kills the great goblin, and then they escape. Um, so the goblins there are, you know, they are they are evil creatures. They are not simple. Um, you know, that is, they, you know, one thing that, the, you know, that I want to get to talking about in a little bit is the, the distinction that the films draw. They draw a very sharp distinction between the different species and kinds of orcs and goblins and things. And the Misty Mountain goblins in particular were depicted, and I took it at the time, uh, that is at the time of the Lord of the Rings films, I took this as a nod to the Hobbit book, basically, that the goblins of the Misty Mountains were seen as these sort of small and uh, less fierce and less intimidating kind of orcs. Um, and, uh, and you know, the, the main orcs that they're going to be fighting later on, you know, when they get to, like, dealing with the big boys, uh, you know, down in Mordor, they're going to be, they're going to, you know, they're, they're a very different breed, which are, which are very different. Um, now, w- there is some precedence for different kinds of species. They do, we do know that, you know, there are different kinds of orcs who speak different languages and have different strengths and weaknesses. Um, but uh, they are... But anyway, the goblins that we get in the Misty Mountains in The Hobbit are actually, they're not, I don't think, um, very much smaller. They're not very much more cartoonish. Um, we do know that the difference between a goblin and an orc, as that, di- as that difference is introduced in, in The Hobbit, is one of size. Um, the great orcs of the mountains are what are called particularly large goblins. Um, Goblin and orc, this is a very common sort of misconception uh, from Tolkien. Uh, Goblin and orc, those are synonyms. Really, the difference is um, who's talking primarily. Um, There are some people, like the hobbits, who tend to use the word goblins much more often, um, and some characters who use the word orcs to describe them pretty much no matter what. uh, so, like the like the elves. So, um, anyway, th- this is not. Uh, th- th- there's not really. Tolkien does not define nearly as thoroughly and nearly as forcibly as the Lord of the Rings film did uh, the distinction between the different breeds of orcs. Um, and he cer- it certainly wasn't that large. It wasn't that dramatic as the difference that was uh, that was put in in the films. Um, but anyway, in the Hobbit. We have the goblins who take them down to Goblin Town. And, you know, the the goblins there are, you know, we know the things that we know about them. We know that they are that they are very skilled craftsmen. We know that they they can make uh, that they can make things. They are inventors. They especially like to invent bombs and instruments of torture and things like that. Um, they are malicious, but they are cunning and they are really good workmen. Um, that is, they they are good. Cra- they are not craftsmen like the dwarves are, but they can make stuff very effectively, especially weapons and armor and stuff like that. Um, so again, that's another thing. The goblins of the Misty Mountain were depicted as having very crude armor and weapons compared to the other orcs. Um, uh, from the south in the films, and again that distinction not maintained uh, or not insisted upon in the book it doesn't doesn't derive from the book in that way. Um, 
when they meet the great goblin, we're told the great goblin is is just this is well, he's quite literally great. He's very large. He's the biggest. He's the biggest goblin there, um, and he is from these goblins who have this past history with Thorin and his family. He recognizes Thorin's name when Thorin tells him who he is, um, because he knows of him because of the war between the the dwarves and the and the goblins, which has been alluded to, um, though not in much detail in the Hobbit itself. We're told about it. Um, we're told about the battle in the mines of Moria. Um, Back in back in chapter one of the Hobbit, though again, we're uh, other than the fact that it was a war for vengeance that the dwarves fought against the goblin, um, because Thror was killed by them. That that much we know, that much we're told in chapter one. But the rest of the details of the Battle of Azanulbazar all come in in Appendix A. Um, so they, they those things don't actually feature um, very clearly in the Hobbit. Now later on, we are given the name of the goblin leader who killed Thror. We're told Azog's name, and we're told that his son Bolg is leading the goblins, is the, the over, sort of the over-king of the goblins who come and attack the Lonely Mountain at the Battle of Five Armies. But that is clearly, that's when I say, I say the goblins kind of get bigger. We're, we're, we're shown this little society of theirs in Goblin Town, and it's through that that we're introduced to the fundamental character of the goblins, uh, to their cruelty, to their cleverness. Um, to you know the wicked ways of the goblins, but then it's later on we begin to see this larger structure of theirs. We hear that they have a capital, which is quite far away from where uh, from Goblin Town, where um, where Bilbo and and the dwarves were taken. Um, they have a capital far up in the north of Misty Mountains, and they have a king, um, who is Bolg, son of Azog, who killed uh, uh, who killed Thror, um, and it is Bolg who leads the army into the Battle of Five Armies at the end. So, um, and that's when we get now, you know, remnant, uh, reminiscences in the Battle of Five Armies about even the ancient wars, not just the old war between the dwarves and the goblins, which is still in living memory of people like Thorin, um, and possibly even of people like the great goblin uh, who dies, but also memories of the ancient wars between the elves of Gondolin and the goblins, because we are told about the elf-goblin wars and how fearsome they were um, and how the goblins sacked Gondolin long ago. Um, and that is recalled not only in Chapter 3, when they're uh, in Rivendell, but also at the Battle of Five Armies itself, when the elves, who are quite different elves, of course, who are not high elves, when the wood elves um, fight against the goblins, and we are told that their hatred of the goblins is long and bitter because they remember the goblin wars of old. Um, so again, now all of a sudden we have we have this sort of two ways in which the story kind of pans outward and places the goblins within this larger historical context. The first of uh, placing them in the context of the, these old conflicts with the dwarves, and then the second and much larger one when they're placed in the context of the battles against the elves in the olden days, in the ancient world. Um, so that's what we get of, of the goblins, and that shift... Um, but, you know, so now thinking back again more about what we saw in the Lord of the Rings films to sort of begin to see how uh, you know, some of the general principles of how it seems goblins are likely to be treated uh, in the Hobbit films. That's certainly, again, the... the uh, because this is another thing, you know, which which is something I've come back to again and again in all of our discussions here. We have to remember that when... 
Peter Jackson and company are doing their Hobbit films, there is not just one text that they are working against. It's not just one text that they have, you know, in their left hands while they're working with their right hand on the thing that they're doing. It's not just the Hobbit book that they have. Um, and it's not even just uh, Tolkien's other writing, like other writings like Appendix A and The Quest of Erebor. It's also the Lord of the Rings films that they have to work with. Those are a pre those are a, those are a pretext uh, to these things. They have to deal with the the things that have already been shown and the statements that have already been made in the Lord of the Rings films. Um, and you know, I mean, and one could very reasonably think that that's going to be the the primary thing that they are thinking of. Um, so they've got how do they take what is said in The Hobbit. Um, the story as Tolkien develops it later on in Appendix A and the Quest of Erebor, and then how they depict it in the, basically the way they set the stage for this uh, in the Lord of the Rings films. So those are the those are the ways in which I think that we we can sort of see um, kind of the, the the groundwork as it's being laid uh, for the film people. So that's so so I talked about the Hobbit stuff, which I talked a little bit about the Lord of the Rings film stuff. We have those distinctions in arc races that they establish. One challenge that they've put for themselves, the Misty Mountain Goblins, if I'm remembering correctly, they really only appear in the Moria sequence in the film. Right? I mean we don't really get those same Misty Mountain Goblin breeds um in other places. I mean I, I don't the- think do we don't really see them um during the Pippin and Mary series of events. Well, we kind of... Right. Well, I don't know whether we do or not. I think we see more yeah, of orcs there. It's hard to tell too. the difference. Exactly. In the book, some of the goblins who are in that party of orcs who are carrying Mary and Pippin across Rohan are, in fact, from the Misty Mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I agree with you. Those li- like those, those, those little uh, goblins that climb down the pillars of Moria... Um, and then run away when the Balrog comes. I, I, I don't remember anybody exactly like that in that party. I, I think that they've removed that. And again, I think that this is one of the things, one of the things that I would point to as a challenge that they have made for themselves by the choices that they made in the, not just the fact that they differentiated among the different breeds of orcs, but the way in which they did. They sort of, um, I was going to say trivialize. That's not the right word. Um, but they reduced anyway the Misty Mountain Goblins um, to the to a point where they didn't incorporate them, even in places where in the text of the Lord of the Rings they were incorporated, um, because they would have looked silly. I mean, next to the Uruk High, they would have been. I mean, because we saw they weren't really much bigger than hobbits um, when they were fighting them in the um, in the caves. Um, so they're a little bit bigger, as I recall. I mean, I'm trying to picture how how high they come up when uh, when you know Aragorn is decapitating them uh, in the <laughs> Chamber of Mizarbul in the film, um, <laughs> both before and after. Uh, but anyway, they would have looked they would have looked sort of comically small compared to the large, much larger orcs that they're fighting um, in the later in like the two towers on. Um, so right. now again. We have this. They can't just ditch it. I mean, if I mean, they could. I guess they could just sort of go back and reinvent the Misty Mountain Goblins and hope that we don't compare too closely to the goblins we saw in Moria in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, but I wouldn't expect them to. I, I wouldn't expect them to take that kind of a cowardly approach. I, I think um, that's a good question. I, I'm generally of the opinion that that 
I don't think they expect the movie audience to discern that much between the different breeds of orcs, especially the, I don't think they really, they went out of their way to specify on screen, um, oh, these people running around in Moria, these are the Misty Mountain orcs, just keep that in mind later. Um, uh, I, I would expect that it, that what, I think what the movie going audience probably will expect is that these that the goblins and orcs will look like generally goblins and orcs from the film. So like the ones that we were fighting against, that we saw them fighting against, um, uh, not so much in Two Towers because in Two Towers it was that they, they were fighting against the um, uh, Urukai, yeah. yeah the Saruman goblin men hybrid things that they decided to call Urukai. Um but rather they were. I think what what. What people would expect these guys to look like is what we saw at um, the Battle of the Pelennor. Um, you know, just sort of the generic Lord of the Rings film orcs. But maybe not. I mean, the the, the one thing they might do is um, to do the, uh, the 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 Lord of the Rings online approach, where there's a distinction between orcs and goblins, and the goblins are definitely uh, you know diminutive compared to the the sort of more the larger more powerful orcs um but i don't know you know it, 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 i obviously we t- we should take the descriptions from the german website with a grain of salt although i will say um when you line them up side by side with the official english descriptions that we know were released for certain characters they're identical so right. i right. and that's I feel like they're yeah. probably legitimate. And reading through those, like the descriptions of Bolg and Azog and stuff, like you get the impression that they're not going with the route of, oh, these goblins are different from orcs. It sounds like they're 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 intermixing them and just sort of they're really using the the same the two words for the same group of creatures. But they do seem to be maintaining a distinction between Azog and Bolg and the Great Goblin and the Goblins of Goblin Town. I mean, I do think. Um, it, it does seem to suggest, and honestly, that's a distinction which seems to be the most logical, um, and even to follow the Hobbit book the closest. When we get, you know, Bolg, and you think of the way that the bodyguard of Bolg is described in the Battle of Five Armies uh, mm-hmm. in the book, these are, these are different from the you know, the goblins that run around the corner of the tunnel and then yell, Beater and Biter, and run away, right? This is different. Um, right. Because, of course, it's one of those same swords that Thorin is wielding in the battle. Wait, no, it's not, because he doesn't have it with him yet. Um, uh, though Gandalf still has his. Um, I said it was taken away by the Elfin King, and the Elfin King only gives it back posthumously, which is very useless. Um, that'll actually be an interesting question. Um, <laughs> what what true. will Thorin fight with in the Battle of Five Arms? But never mind, never mind. I'm yeah, that's totally it. straying into film two and three. So... Um, um, so I think this is a good point because if you read through the description of the, the, the great goblin who for some reason is referred to as the Goblin King, um, yeah, they really like they, they really make the, the goblins of Goblin Town sound it, – it's, so it's not so much a difference in terms of um, like physical stature or genetic makeup but more character. Like these guys are these guys are, are a bunch of sort of um, uh, wilderness bandits type dudes, um, uh, and and, and um, uh, whereas the you know it sounds like the the gang of orcs that Azog would be leading are more you know like kind of what we would expect from the Lord of the Rings films, like fairly fairly you know deadly menacing type characters. Um, and it does suggest a question, I think, about the about the basically 
Well, the political structure, and I don't just mean the political structure within the goblin world, which is itself already a question. Um, and uh, you know, as uh, some of uh, as some of our listeners here have been commenting at various points, when the go- when the when the great goblin was first you know announced and introduced, the phrase "goblin king" kept being used about him, um, which seemed to suggest that they were actually, if anything, going to elevate the position of the great goblin. That is, elevate it within the political structure of the goblins. It's clear that the Great Goblin is sort of a local, um, a local chieftain um, uh, that is, you know, is a captain of the goblins who live in that particular region, but is not the overall king of the goblins. That is Bolg, and he lives very far away from where the Great Goblin was located. So again, if there is anything to, and 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 you know, there might not be. Again, this might just be an IMDb thing, which is not always reliable, as we've been saying. Um, that uh, you know, like Great Goblin, Goblin King, those two things might just seem like synonyms to some people. Um, uh, <laughs> to some people who just know nothing about these important and fine distinctions that must be made. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, um, I, as I say, there's there's a, there's a question. You know, there is there is I think a definite question about how that internal political structure is going to happen within the goblin world. Is, are they going to in fact elevate the great goblin so as to make his death, assuming his death happens in the first film, um, a really really big deal politically, or are they going to have Azog and Bolg? in that leading position with, you know, the great goblin being a more minor character as he is in, in, in the book. Similarly, another larger question, and this of course is one which is not explicitly brought into the book at all, but which is definitely brought into question by the later developments of the story that Tolkien wrote. And that is, what is their connection with Sauron? And how does that, what is the overall political structure? We've talked a little bit um, in the past, though we've tried to t- not to talk too much about the dragon. We've mentioned the question of, you know, what, if any, is going to be the coordination between Smaug and Sauron? Or, you know, is there going to be any communication between them? Um, how is that going to be treated or is that going to be, uh, is that going to be avoided entirely? I think it would be difficult for them to avoid, to avoid the issue entirely, that is. But, um, since we are going to be in this retelling of the story, um, raising the profile of and the focus on the necromancer, uh, you know, the, the necromancer, Sauron's sort of presence and career as the necromancer there in Dol Guldur, um, you know, we're not going to be able to have what we do get in the Hobbit book, which is an entirely autonomous uh, goblin culture, just on its own, them doing these things because they themselves are wicked um, and acting acting on their own. They're not acting under the orders of the necromancer. There is no whiff of the fact that the goblins of the Misty Mountains... Um, do what they do in the passes of the mountains or do what they do at the Battle of Five Armies through the instigation of the necromancer. There's no, there's no, there's no faintest hint of that in the book. But again, when you come at it from the point of view of the quest of Erebor and Appendix A, it would seem to become almost inescapable. How can you have orcs acting on that kind of level? Um, you know, and Sauron is what? Is he not even noticing? Like, he doesn't even care? Um, he has no part in any of that. That seems really unlikely. So again, that I think is another question that the film is really going to need to address. 
Yeah, the, I, I agree. Um, uh, and some of the speculation on the internet is spurred on by, and I don't want to be too hung up on the, the, the character descriptions and keep coming back to those given that we're, yeah. we, they, they may be questionable, but some of the speculation based around those now, since, since they're playing up this idea that Azog was supposed to have died at the Battle of Five Armies and now he's reappeared at the head of this gang of killer orcs or whatever, some of the speculation is that the necromancer has a hand in that, that either it's some kind of deception or maybe he's a zombie Azog running around who's been raised from the, the dead or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which sounds kind of, which is, uh, I don't know how I feel about that, but, um, but well, I, I suspect that's, that given that at least if we take the description seriously, um, uh, they're obviously intend for us to connect Azog's reappearance with the greater mystery. They have, they, they include the sentence for Gandalf begins a race against time because he has to figure out the connection between the most dangerous orc commander and the growing evil, which takes shape in the ruins of Dol Guldur. So, um, that really seems to point to the idea that this is supposed to be included in the larger mystery of of um, what's going on with the dull gold or and the growing evil and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, and of course, at the very least, um, we have, a, you know, a, a, again that clear evidence with Azog as the major link, politically speaking, between Dol Guldur and the rest of the goblin culture. Basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so even even if he's even if even if he's not an undead orc, um, though, and can I say like I know that uh, like I, I am sure I can I can kind of you know I, I can I, I can hear you know in my in my uh, you know my 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 Tolkien uh, uh, fan senses tell me that the very phrase uh, zombie orc. Azog is going to uh, is is a concept that would cause enormous consternation among Tolkien fandom. We'll call him a Zork. A Zork. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, but here's here's what I have to say about that, though. I mean, the fact is that's Tolkien's fault. Tolkien opened that can of worms. Tolkien opened that can of worms by calling this dude the necromancer. Okay, like we have this association with death and the spirits of the dead, which is intrinsic in the name necromancer. And Tolkien never really says much about what he means by necromancer. Um, that is about about how, um, you know, in what sense he's a necromancer. Certainly in The Hobbit, there's no glimpse of that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, if we get Sauron... You know, dealing with the dead and calling up the dead. Uh, I mean, he's called the necromancer. That's what Tolkien called him. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's um, that's that's yeah. You know, it's not that that means you know having a having a zombie orc Azog return from the dead is an inescapable plot feature because Tolkien named him the the necromancer but again like that it's Tolkien that opened that can of worms i have to say right and it, it seems it, it it doesn't seem unlikely that they would want to give some kind of on-screen reason for this name um, right 
Right. Because, see, that's the thing. Like, Tolkien actually, he, he leaves it. He never explains it. Um, certainly never in the like, works that he published. Like many things in The Hobbit. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, so, no, I mean, he... Um, um, he 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 just he he leaves that unexplained, but you're right. I don't think the films really can do so. Um, it's going to be very difficult for them to have a character called the necromancer in which you know nothing of that is ever explained. Yep, yep, um, yeah. I, I I think it's very interesting, and, and I'm really curious to see how they execute the the politics because on the one hand. They seem to be referring to Barry Humphrey's character as the Goblin King. On the other hand, the, the description that we've seen of him makes him sound like he his his kingdom over which he rules is a, is a bunch of ramshackle huts. Right. <laughs> um, so he doesn't sound very. King. I'm, I'm wondering if he's if maybe this is meant to be sort of a tongue in cheek, like he's a self styled dictator over his his little community, but but he really has very little power. Um, right. What uh, so remind me? I'm a little fuzzy. When we're reading through uh, the Battle Five Armies and the arrival of the Goblin Army, how much of the death of the Great Goblin is is an element of that of the or of them arriving, or is it much more the goblins are coming because they because they're coming for gold and to 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 plunder and spoil and get the spoils. Well, I mean, basically, the implication is that this, the killing of the of the Great Goblin had already, like, stirred up the pot. You know, that, that the killing of the Great Goblin was basically the first kicking of the beehive. Um, and the goblins have been turned out. They've been marshalling. They've been, you know, they've, they've, they've gone. And then this news came in. Let me see if I can find the actual, um, the actual paragraph here. Um, uh, okay, let's see. So the uh, okay. Um, all right, here it is. So this is at the beginning of the Battle of Five Armies uh, in the chapter called "The Clouds Burst" in the Hobbit. Um, this is how it fell out. Ever since the fall of the Great Goblin of the Misty Mountains. The hatred of their race for the dwarves had been rekindled to fury. Messengers had passed to and fro between all their cities, colonies, and strongholds, for they resolved now to win the dominion of the north. Tidings they had gathered in secret ways, and in all the mountains there was a forging and an arming. Then they marched and gathered by hill and valley, going ever by tunnel or under dark, until around and beneath the great mountain Gundabad of the north— where was their capital, a vast host was assembled, ready to sweep down in time of storm, unawares upon the south. Then they learned of the death of Smaug, and joy was in their hearts, and they hastened night after night through the mountains, and came thus at last on a sudden from the north, hard on the heels of Dayan. Not even the ravens knew of their coming, until they came out in the broken lands which divided the lonely mountain from the hills behind. How much Gandalf knew cannot be said, but it is plain that he had not expected this sudden assault. So, yes, so basically this is not a question of, like, you have killed our overlord and so we are coming to wage war against you. But the incident, um, the incident of the killing of the Great Goblin does rekindle their hatred for the dwarves, and they're already mobilizing. So, like, the, the Goblin army is getting together, um, and it, it, it is the killing of the Great Goblin that puts it into motion, and then it's refocused on Erebor when they hear about the death of Smaug. You know, then you've got this great profiteering opportunity uh, in addition to a war of vengeance. So I wonder, um, I, I wonder if maybe sort of the Great. I mean, it could be that it could be that the Great Goblin isn't 
isn't necessarily, he's not like their overlord, nor is he even maybe a particularly popular figure. But, 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 if, you know, like, hey, you know, we, we can, we can pick on this guy all we want, but if, uh, some dwarves kill him, then, then we're mad. So, uh, it, it's possible that, are we sort of supposed to interpret that as, um, that, that essentially they were kind of just looking for an excuse, and this was a good excuse for, for, you know, to blame the dwarves. It, that it, you know, it's the kind of thing that it's like, they, that most of the goblins, you know, especially the more prominent ones, aren't particularly fussed or couldn't care less about the great goblin up until he's killed by a bunch, by a gang of dwarves, and then everybody decides to get upset. Yeah, I mean, it, it does kind of sound like they were looking for an excuse. I mean, obviously their numbers are such that they're ready for a war, um, you know, down to, 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 to descend in storm upon the south. Um, and uh, this seems to be like, and if, you know, now everybody, you know, now they've got, uh, you know, lots of goblins running around, you know, shaking uh, their little orc swords, uh, you know, the, their little goblin swords uh, at people. So, okay, let's take advantage of this and go. Because, yeah, I mean, when you look at the, the plan there, that is, you know, when they plan to descend with war upon the south, it's not primarily... Uh, or, or even significantly dwarves upon whom they would be fighting. They're not going, they're not setting out like the dwarves did to fight a war of vengeance against, uh, against the, the, the dwarves. No, it's a war of conquest. Exactly. You know, this is, this is their opportunity and they're going to, obviously the people they're going to be, they would be, they would be primarily fighting the people that, you know, if, again, assuming that Erebor were empty, which while they were, gathering their army was true um, Erebor only became a point of interest when uh, um, when they had um, when Smaug died so if you sort of look at that you've got the you've got the gray mountains in the north and the misty mountains you've got the the misty mountains that go north and south and the gray mountains that kind of stretch to the north of that you know form this northern border of Mirkwood uh, on the map and those seem to be the mountains that they are primarily um, Coming in, you know, that we're told that they travel in secret, that they travel invisibly and largely underground through the mountains. Um, so it's not the Misty Mountains that they're traveling through. Mount Gundabad is right there at the junction of the Grey Mountains uh, and the uh, and the Misty Mountains. And uh, so they're clearly going out the Grey Mountains, and from the Grey Mountains, as was just described in the passage I read, there's only a fairly short stretch of ground which has nothing to do with Mirkwood. Um, which is uh, uh, which lies between the southern edge of the Grey Mountains and Erebor, right? Um, so, so, so again, you sort of you look at that and you say, all right, this orc army is going to descend, you know, to the south from the Grey Mountains, you know, from the you know from the Grey Mountains and the Misty Mountains. Whom are they going to attack? Well, who is there? I mean, you've got the human settlements out to the uh, to the west of Mirkwood. You know, uh, uh, you know the people who become the Bjornings, the people over whom Bjorn becomes king later on. Um, you know, the, those brave woodmen that are described that the uh, goblins and wargs had been planning to go and attack um, on the night that uh, Bilbo and the dwarves happened into their meeting place. Um, and then you've got the people of Eskaroth, right? So you've got some human settlements over there on the other side, on the eastern side of Mirkwood. And then you've got the Wood Elves in Mirkwood. Who else is there? 
well, almost nobody. I mean, that's it. Like, yes. Whole, you know, and, and there are no dwarves. There are dwarves over in the Iron Hills. Presumably the goblins wouldn't have excluded the dwarves in the Iron Hills from their conquest. But this was not, it doesn't seem, particularly um, and exclusively an attack on the Iron Hills. They were going to descend upon the south with war. The Iron Hills doesn't really count as the south in that way. Um, so... So yeah, so I, I, no, it so- does seem that this is basically a planned war of goblin conquest, um, which takes as in its as 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 its impetus to get started the death of the great goblin, and then gets distracted by the the prize of the horde of Erebor left open. So is this um, is this an opportunity for let's call it innovation on the part of the filmmakers? Um, uh, it, 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 like when we start talking about it as a um, a war of conquest sort of long in the planning, you know, uh, that just happens to be uh, instigated by this inciting event. Uh, you know, obviously these, this sort of strategic long-term implications become become apparent, you know, like what, what would have the state of things been um, at the start of the War of the Ring uh, if the goblins had succeeded in conquering the whole north? Um, not particularly good. And so uh, I wonder if one area for innovation for the filmmakers is to make this actually a, a, a strategic move of Sauron. Exactly. And you see, that's also one of the strategic one of the one of the moves of Tolkien also. I mean, you know, when he was when we have this talk of a goblin, the goblin war and the goblins descending upon the south. Again, this has this has no further implications Um other in, in in Tolkien's mind, because he's you know the, the rest of that story doesn't exist. Um, you know he barely he he barely had much of the South worked out at that point. You know he just he didn't know that story. Um, but yes, from the point of view of the Lord of the Rings, having written the, the Lord of the Rings story and having had that world and and that story uh, working out in his mind, that move could not be un- any more unrelated. Um, to Sauron's preparation for the War of the Ring. And so we have this entire, basically everything north of Gondor, um, with a possible exception of Lorien, which would, could probably hold its own. Um, but basically, if if the goblins, if this goblin war had succeeded, if Smaug had survived, especially if Smaug had survived and worked with them, uh, then, you know, then maybe even Lorien would have fallen. Um, and, you know, so basically then you have Sauron in total control of that, of everything to the east of the Misty Mountains, other than maybe Gondor itself, um, and Rohan itself could easily have been challenged then at that point from the north, because the northern borders of Rohan are are not really very well defended. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, obviously the sort of the the implications of this as a, as a strategic move of preparing for the War of the Ring are pretty clear. And again, this this exactly the way that Tolkien himself kind of reconceptualized these um, these these bits, these structures uh, in The Hobbit, these things that actually occurred anyway in The Hobbit, um, these are exactly the things which set the um, which set the scene for for this to be a genuinely sort of epic, like time is running out kind of, you know, this is like averting the end of the world here. Um, you know, it, it is a way, and it's, again, this is the thing, I guess the thing, I keep saying this again and again, like, 
I, you know, I don't doubt that Peter Jackson is going to make a lot of his own changes and stuff, but the fact is Tolkien handed him this. You know, we do have The Hobbit reconceived as a sort of fitting moment of crisis, a fitting moment of, um, you know, anticipatory saving of the world, like the, the earlier step without which the later victories would never even have been able to happen uh, kind of prequel. Um, that's how Tolkien himself conceived uh, this whole political situation in retrospect from yeah. the point of view of the Lord of the Rings. So, But again, what this directly leads to then is the question of what is the connection between Dol Guldur and the orcs of the Misty Mountains because that isn't explicitly done. And so we have... Azog, who may or may not be a Zork, and uh, and uh, well, I can't really use the word Zork because I have too much affection for the old 1980s text-only video game uh, by that name. So I, this I is really with can't. a C, not a K. I know it's with a C and not a K, but it sounds the same. <laughs> uh, so I'm not going to be able to say Zork without about- uh, without thinking of the number of hours I spent frustratedly trying to guess exactly the right verb to type in in order to get the character to do what he obviously had to do in a particular room. And so yeah. On. Well, I can tell um, you which one's the wrong one. When you're standing, when you're standing on a cliff or atop a mountain, jump. Not, jump not the is, right a, answer. Is, is, is not a good verb. Yes, yeah, I that, agree. That was one never to use lightly. <laughs> yeah. Um, how about Zombork? <laughs> Zombork. Uh, see, that's better. I like that better. And the reason I like that better is it is more obviously comical. Yes. <laughs> um, because certainly the idea of zombie orcs are, are indeed comical. Uh, if I could just digress for a second, having mentioned the necromancer thing, I, I, I figured I might as well read the only passage of Tolkien text, you know, of, 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 of Tolkien's story in which he actually does do something to explain the necromancer's name. And, and, it's, and it's not about zombie orcs, exactly. Um, the passage that I'm talking about is from the Lay of Beleriand. Um, or from the Lay of Lathian, published in the Lays of Beleriand, Volume 3 of the History of Middle-earth. And it's the description of Thu, who is, uh, who is Sauron, the necromancer. Um, so let's see. Men called him Thu, and as a god in after days beneath his rod, bewildered bowed to him and made his ghastly temples in the shade. Not yet by men enthralled adored, now he was Morgoth's mightiest lord, master of wolves, whose shivering howl forever echoed in the hills, and foul enchantments and dark sigildry did weave and wield. In glamoury that necromancer held his hosts of phantoms and of wandering ghosts, of misbegotten or spell-wronged monsters that about him thronged, working his bidding dark and vile, the werewolves of the wizard's isle. So there you go. He has, apparently, hosts of phantoms and of wandering ghosts, we are told. And also, misbegotten or spell-wronged monsters, which are then subsequently, it would seem, identified with the werewolves of the Wizard's Isle. So, interesting is, is the, the only... The only actually necromantic thing that we uh, that we have Sauron described as doing, um, really at any point that I can recall in Tolkien's published writings. Um, so uh, and uh, and that doesn't tell us a lot. <laughs> nope, nope, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, but uh, th- though that idea of, go- of 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 you know phantoms and ghosts about him is interesting, especially you know it, it's. Uh, 
I mean, it's hard at that point not to think of the only things that were sort of phantom and spectral that were around him before that we've seen in the Lord of the Rings are the ring rates, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, here we are kind of like glancing out of the corner of our eyes uh, at the, at the tombs of the Nazgul again. Um, Don't remind me. Well, see, but that's the thing. As much as people want to, want to sort of cringe at that. And again, I totally get that. The fact of spirits being raised from tombs, he's the necromancer, right? I mean, he's, that's, that's, if necromancy is in fact going to be associated with Sauron, as Tolkien invites to be done, then the fact that he's going to be bringing forth spirits out of tombs is in fact just what we would expect to see, just what we would almost need to see right. to justify the name. And now, again, the fact that the idea that the Nazgul were like somehow imprisoned in tombs and stuff and how this would happen with, with the Nazgul in particular, who like the, the whole essence of what makes a Nazgul is the fact that it hasn't died, right? That its life has been stretched out. It has become this wraith-like torment, um, as was in the process of happening to Gollum, in which Bilbo even began to experience with his butter stretched over, you know, scraped over too much bread reference. Anyway, I mean, obviously that, that doesn't really fit the Nazgul as Tolkien described them. Um, but, but again, uh, you know, going through and opening tombs and, and raising imprisoned spirits, that's just what we would expect a necromancer to do. And in fact, it's not too far from what we see actually happening, not by Sauron, but by the Witch King with the Barrow Whites. You know, the Barrow Whites are dark spirits um, who are sent into these tombs to live there. So it's not, no, they're not raised out of tombs, they're put into tombs um, by the Witch King. Uh, so, so again, you know, we see because the Barrow Whites arguably are the other sort of necromantic thing that happens. Um, but, uh, um, but though though they're not Sauron directly, though again, one one would wonder if we might get something like Barrow Whites in the Hobbit film, as long as we're on the necromantic kick. Right. But, and we should point out that Zomborks are completely consistent with necromancy. Well, yeah. I mean, what could be more consistent than a Zomborg? Um, even an army. <laughs> oh, God. Zomborgs. An undead army of Zomborgs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> this is a winner. I am telling you. Yeah. Yep. Why didn't people ask us to write these films? Okay, well, they would have been probably because they would have ended up being just openly comedic. Uh, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Brandon seems to think that the word Zomborg sounds a lot like uh, sounds a lot like the Swedish chef from the Muppets, which is possible, actually. I think um, I can just yeah. see uh, I can just see Azok riding riding along, chasing the the company of dwarves, shouting brains, brains. Uh, but whom would he be chasing? Uh, well, anyway, sorry. Ooh, that was a low one. Um, I, <laughs> It's not that none of them have brains. Um, so, uh, so let's. Uh, I think another interesting topic to expand upon here that I, that I'm personally interested in is um, opportunities for expanding the roles of goblins and or orcs or zomborks in the the in the in the larger story. So, it never gets less funny. Sorry, go ahead. It never does. <laughs> yeah. If, yeah. If um, if they confine the the goblins to their roles in the book, then what yep. we would see is 
we they'd be on screen for about five or ten minutes. Uh, no, no, more than that. For about twenty minutes or so, for the the Misty Mountain sequence, they get the yeah. dwarves get captured. They murder the Great Goblin. They escape. Then they get attacked in the trees, and then they escape again. And then we see them not at all until the end of the third film. No goblins in the second film whatsoever. Well, maybe maybe at the um, oh well, but this is part of expanding the story. So. It seems unlikely that's how it will happen in the film. Um, um, uh, scenes of the, the dwarves cleaving goblin heads in half is, is just too good. Um, <laughs> and obviously they'll, they'll probably be involved in the White Council storyline. And, and if we're, again, to take the character description seriously, which we, we know, take them with a grain of salt and all that, they've given us um, at least five named Goblin characters, goblin orc characters, and mm-hmm. and in, and that include and the casting of Azog and Bolg, like they went out of their way to 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 promote this, um, um, and they're and you know and the people that they got to play them are not, you know they're they're not famous actors, but they're also not nobodies. They're guys that are famous for playing you know large hulking characters in other sci-fi fantasy shows. So. Um, it seems it's, and this is something. If you recall, we speculated about this really early on in um, Reels in the Dark. We wondered would Azog and or Bolg at the time we were wondering if they would conflate the characters. Would they right. possibly be this like recurring villain that kept popping up over and over again? You know, like that they would every every confrontation with evil, Bolg or Azog would be there, <laughs> and we joked about it. And of course, now we read in the description that Bolg is actually supposedly going to be uh, at Dol Guldor. Um, uh, so. Um, I wonder, you know, the question is, what, what opportunities are there to insert goblins into other scenes or storylines, whether Main Hobbit or, um, uh, or the White Council? And in particular, not just goblins, you know, not just like nameless goblin guards who get killed, but rather specifically these, 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 um, these villainous characters that I think, I really think, I don't think that the filmmakers will want to to use the um, the, the Tolkien's device for the Battle of Five Armies, where it's like, look, here comes the Goblin Army. By the way, it's led by Bolg, who happened to be the son of Azog, the guy that they killed a long time ago, and is at the root of all this hatred between the dwarves and the the goblins. Just thought you might want to know. Okay, back to the fighting. You don't worry about Bolg. We just wanted you to know his name. Like, I, I don't think that. I think that would be. I don't think they want Bolg to be like the um, the 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 um, deformed pale orc commander who shows up at, at Pelennor um, yeah. commanding commanding the orcs in the in the Lord of the Rings film where you're like, who the heck is that? I, I think they really want to flesh out these characters and really give them some strong um, uh, uh, you know characterizations, characterizations, motivations and all that. So what opportunities do we see? I, I'm going to propose two. Um, one that uh, uh, I'm going to toss out three things. One, it sounds like it's possible that Azog is going to be pursuing the the company of dwarves, yes. which I think is a great idea because it adds some urgency to the to the Father Roderick and I were talking about this over the weekend. This having them pursued, even if we never see them both on screen together, if we just know that there's uh, you know some evil orcs on giant wolves chasing after them, it adds some urgency. Like, come on, guys, get moving, get moving. Right. Two, it sounds like possible that maybe one or the other will be at Dol Golder, and maybe there will be a confrontation with Gandalf. Mm-hmm. And then three, I'm just gonna I'm gonna lay this out there. My expectation is one or the other will die 
during the course of the first two films, and that will be uh, that will be the comp- driving reason for revenge at the Battle of Five Armies. That either Azog or Bolg will be killed by somebody, and that whichever one's left over will be leading the Goblin Army. And part of what they're looking for is revenge for the murder of the other one. Or maybe that means at the Battle of Five Armies, we will have two Zomborgs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Okay, no, that's good, because I certainly agree with you that it would be difficult for the films to handle the goblins in the same way that the book does. Namely, bring them in for those two chapters, For uh, well, okay, three, really, though the Gollum chapter mostly skips them. Um, but, you know, we've got chapter four, five, and six. Chapter four, where they're captured. Chapter five is the Gollum chapter, and Bilbo escaping out the back door, and then chapter six is when, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire, where eventually the goblins set fire to the trees, and then the goblins are last seen throwing spears up, you know, uselessly at the eagles as the eagles fly away. We learn about them a little bit more when, you know, Bjorn goes back and apparently tortures one to death and then decapitates it and brings its head back. But uh, but anyway, at that point, the goblins, though we think about them a little bit, though we're, you know, we're told that you know that when they're planning how to get through Mirkwood, they're thinking about avoiding them. Nevertheless, they basically drop out until all of a sudden, ta-da! Remember the goblins in the Battle of Five Armies? Oh yeah, you forgot about the goblins, didn't you? Well, here they all sudden are suddenly in force, and I'm going to give you this paragraph, the one I just read, telling you what they've been doing in the meantime while you have forgotten about them and the story has completely left them behind. Um, I agree with you. I can't see that happening in the film, uh, the complete leaving behind of the goblins uh, and the and, and the goblin story. They're not going to be able to just do that off scene, especially given what I said before, you know, what we were both talking about before, about the political circumstances and their, the connection that they're almost going to have to have with Sauron. So we are going to have to involve them in some way. And I agree that a pursuit makes sense and seems like a good thing. Um, Especially if you have, you know, Azog and Bolg being, and again, the thing that I still don't fully understand, the thing that I don't, um, I can't see from these character descriptions. And by the way, one thing I would, uh, two things I will say about the character descriptions that we've been talking about. Uh, uh, Sophia Gross, who's uh, who's here with us in the room today, she uh, was saying that. Um, uh, the character, those character descriptions have been officially announced by Warner Brothers, um, and you know the headmaster of their website uh, in Germany contacted them, and they confirmed that they're official descriptions from Warner Brothers. Um, okay, so they're official. I'm willing to accept that they're official. That does not, to me, that does not convince me that I still should not take them with a grain of salt, um, because I, you know I, I don't know exactly. I've seen lots of blurbs on the backs of books, on the backs of DVD cases. The things that are written on the back of the, D- the DVD cases of films were presumably also approved by the yeah. by the, the people who released the film. Good point. And let me tell you, they are not always very intimately connected with the actual plot of the of the movie. No, that's, so, that's um, true. It, it may have been written by the same person that wrote the, uh, the quiz on Facebook. Right, exactly. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, it's it's I, you know I still I still am, am I'm I'm not going to to totally take those to the bank. I mean, there are some things that do seem relatively safe to take from it. That is, you know, the one thing that we can see in those descriptions is a gap between the sort of Azog Bolg subculture of goblins and the great goblins people. 
that seems to me very likely. You know, I, I, th- that's certainly a thing that I'm uh, that I am inclined to believe. And it, you know, and the idea that Azog and Bolg would thereby be sort of the ones who would serve as the more active liaison to Dol Guldur and to Sauron. Again, that makes sense to me. What I still don't get is where that puts them in the overall hierarchy. Are we going to get? I mean, are they going to be leading the goblins? You know, are they going to be? basically in the position that Bolg was in in the book when we get to the Battle of Five Armies. Um, is there an overking of the goblins? My guess actually would be no, because we don't need one if Sauron is there. Um, you know, we needed Bolg to be who Bolg was in the book, you know, to be this sort of semi-legendary goblin, you know, massive goblin king who comes at the head of this army in, uh, in the Battle of Five Armies. Because, again, they, they had no other leader. There was no other central force. If the necromancer is going to be seen in the film as the central force, they don't have to have a king. I mean, you know, that's not really necessary. Um, and it's, so, it's, not, it's not necessarily... I mean, it's, it's not really kind of consistent with with what we know of goblins and orcs too, right? Like they, right. they're not generally the kind to create a highly organized structured society and defer, you know, defer to one overarching authority. They tended to be more, they're more like the kind of the, the goblin town bandit type things. Like, you know, we, we have the, the conversation between, um, um, shoot. What are the two dudes that Sam over here is talking? Um, Oh, uh, uh, Shagrat and Gorbag. Yeah, Shagrat and Gorbag. They're you know they're they're always they're talking about like uh, going someplace where there aren't any big big lords, big bosses. Yeah, yeah, big bosses and setting up on their own and and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I feel like they tend to be more um, uh, a, a more distributed and kind of um, self organizing society. Yes, but they would also defer to a war chieftain. I mean, that's why it, it makes perfect sense that the right. leader of the goblins would be the biggest and baddest one of them, uh, right. of whom the rest of them are afraid. Um, so, so yeah, and so I mean that that you can see, um, you know, the the one who is able, you know, the biggest and scariest orc who is able to um, to to rouse the rest of them. But that would be when they're them. that would be when they're mustering for for a right. war, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, but then you think about, I think, for instance, again, to go back to the films, think about the Battle of Helm's Deep. Like, who was the orc leader of that army? We don't know. I mean, we're never really, t- it's Saruman's army. Right? Yes. That's all we need to know, because we have a central figure who is the one who is mobilizing and, and, and leading them. Um, we're, we, you know, we don't have a goblin personality who is in charge of the attack on Helm's Deep. Um, and so similarly, there's less of a need for a centralized goblin personality to be a leader um, if we have the necromancer there. So I could see, therefore, Azog and Bolg serving more of a kind of an ad hominem role rather than a political role among the goblins, that they would be important because of their, because of their history. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and you know, and the, the fact that one of them—I mean, the idea that one of them would die—seems very likely because, as I said at the beginning, there are a heck of a lot of them floating around. If we have Azog and Bolg and the Great Goblin, we have three Goblin leaders. Surely, that's at least two Goblin leaders too many, right? I mean, we could be down to one by the time we get to the, to the Battle of Five Armies and not miss anybody. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, no, that would that uh, that certainly does make sense. Um, and actually leads fairly conveniently into uh, our prediction question. 
our prediction question, which uh, to which we were helped by our uh, live audience here uh, before we started our official recording. Um, and here is our prediction question for the goblins. And the challenge here, of course, as you see in our conversation, we have roamed very freely across the entire story, uh, including the Battle of Five Armies at the end. Our prediction questions, we are striving, we are continuing to strive to make our prediction questions relevant only to film one at this point. Um, And so we're trying to avoid any references to uh, or options which include the Battle of Five Armies. So, here, therefore, is our prediction question. The, uh, the question is, what will happen to the Great Goblin when uh, Thorin and Bilbo and Gandalf and everybody encounter them in the Misty Mountains? Um, a, of course, as always, option A is the book answer. Uh, Gandalf will kill the Great Goblin. Option B, Thorin will kill the Great Goblin. Option C, Bilbo will kill the Great Goblin. Option D, the Great Goblin will escape and return as a recurring villain later on in the films. Should we add an option? Should we add a Father Roderick option E? Uh, <laughs> he will he will die because of due to treachery on the behalf of his own people. Well, let's say that. Well, I'd be willing to. The reason I'm tossing that in there is they have this character Grinna that they listed yeah. on the description, and he says, Fawning and obsequious, he serves as master of the rich and moody goblin king, but secretly he despises him. Right. Well, uh, what is opposed to, like, looking at him with, like, great loyalty and devotion, like orcs are wont to do? Yes. Um, <laughs> you mean we're not going to get this guy, like, you know, with the goblin king dead, sort of, like, lying there with tears rolling down his face, cradling the head of the dead goblin king? Okay, well, let, let's tell you what. Let's change option C, then, to to just, like, basically somebody... I mean, I think that, you know, obviously we've got the book answer as one major option. We've got... Uh, Thorin, I think, uh, deserves to be another major option because basically to me what that means, option B is the option you would choose if you think that the Great Goblin plot is, you know, the the Great Goblin incident in the story is going to be incorporated into the larger sort of cycle of escalating vengeance um, between the dwarves and the goblins that we already see going on. Um, And this is something... This is something which is echoed actually within the text itself. And one of my favorite references to this is actually not in The Hobbit, um, but in, uh, uh, in, the, in The Fellowship of the Ring, when Gimli is talking about the goblins chasing them out of Moria and saying they will often pursue people, pursue people far across the plains if they have, if they have a fallen captain to avenge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his he wasn't there himself, but his dad was. Um, he knows how this happened. So again, they, but but that phrase to avenge a fallen captain. Well, that's exactly what the dwarves did, of course, you know, when they fought the Battle of Azanulbazar uh, to avenge uh, uh, to avenge Thror. So, um, anyway, so we have. Uh, um, we have this. Uh, there's also some other evidence. Uh, uh, Kirsch had provided a very useful link to interviews with Richard Armitage when he was uh, talking about he and he actually mentions Azog by name and specifically talks about the, you know, the question of vengeance against Azog for the death of Thror. Um, so clear, I mean, it, it seems clear that certainly 
a uh, a factor that's present uh, in 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 Armitage's mind as he's thinking about the character of Thorin. Um, so it seems to be seems probable that it is in fact going to be a theme in the book. So again, the question is, are they going to use the opportunity of the conflict in Goblin Town um, to further the the revenge plot. Not that Gandalf's killing of him couldn't... You know, I mean, they're still going to want revenge for the Great Goblin no matter who killed him. But again, is it going to be this sort of escalating the dwarves with Thorin and secondarily with Dayan um, as the as the you know the, the 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 aggressors on the one side and the goblins with Azog and Bolg uh, on the other side, um, you know, sort of continually fighting this cycle of vengeance war. Because mm-hmm. uh, it, it, so I, I mean I I could easily see it being being uh, thrown into that, being included into that. But then again, we would have an option. I, I think Bilbo killing the great goblin is rather unlikely, um, and so I would certainly be willing to lump in with that basically that the Grey Goblin dies, but he's killed by somebody else, not Gandalf or Thor. Yeah, okay. I think that's reasonable. That's what I wrote down. Okay, okay. And then option D, again, he survives. Well... All right. What do you think? I think it's thoroughly uncontroversial. A. You think A? Yeah. Okay. Now, why do you think it's uncontroversial that Gandalf is the one who kills him? I don't know. It just... I'm, I generally operate on the rule, despite despite the you know I know Peter Jackson has a varied despite the evidence to the contrary. No, no, no. I was going to say it, it, Peter Jackson has a has a um, um, has a varied uh, um, um, reputation and perception in the in the in the wider Tolkien community, and I believe there's many purists that think he's uh, you know wantonly changing things and all that, but I, I don't. I generally think that when he changes things, he changes them purposefully. And I think this is a case where, I don't know, I just don't see any really compelling re- – nothing – there's there's no reason that really com- compels me to say, oh, you know, it obviously makes sense if Thorne kills him. It's just like uh, the, the reason – sort of the arguments to make for, for example, Thorin killing him, oh, to play up the hatred and all that – Gandalf killing him accomplishes that. You know what I mean? Like once he's dead, he's dead. No one's going to – the goblins aren't going to um, um, uh, quibble over, well, technically, guys, Gandalf struck the blow. No, they don't care. All they know is the dwarves showed up. Now the great goblin's dead. You know, it was kind of dark. Nobody really saw who swung the sword anyway. We're just going to blame them all. Blame all of them. Gandalf, Thorin, the whole party. So I just don't see I don't see a particularly compelling reason for any of that, and I certainly don't think he'll escape. I, I think I think you're right about there's um, there's there's a lot of main orc characters, and I think by the time we reach Battle Five Armies, it's going to be whittled down to one. I think um, Great Goblin will die here as he does in the book, and I think either Azog or Bolg, probably Azog, will die along the way. And I think Bolg and or Azog will be in charge of the, ar- the the Goblin Army at the Battle of Five Armies at the end. So, so I don't see any reason for him to escape. I don't think Cor- I don't think there's a particularly good reason to change it to Thorin killing him. And I don't really see any really other good attractive answer in terms of somebody else killing him. So, okay, it, it's kind of reminds gonna- me of it reminds me of let's see what was the last completely undisputed answer question we had. Let's see. There's one of them where almost everybody answered the same thing. I think it was Riddle 6. What would be the, the, what would be the, the tone of the final moment of the film? Like oh, yes, yes. Every single person a- answered C, except for Mark Fisher. 
And and we've had a few of those. Also, I think Riddle 9, what will be the opening moment of The Hobbit, everybody answered D except for uh, Trish. So um, I, I think this is one of, another one of those answers where people are probably going to say like, eh, I can't really think of a good reason to change it or how they would change it. Just stick with the way it is in the book. Okay. Well, we're definitely not going to have complete agreement as you just described because I'm going B. Really? I think it's going to be Thorin, and this is why. Um, I do. I think, first of all, that they are going to want to play up a goblin story. And here's the thing which I was already kind of thinking, and the one way in which those character descriptions really do begin to sway me a bit is in thinking about the way that they are going to develop these goblin characters. The mere fact that they have not simply elided these into one character, which... You mean Azog and Bolg? Azog, Bolg, yeah. Great Goblin. I mean, it, 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 at the, at the, I mean there, there certainly doesn't need to be more than two of them in in the story. Because indeed, in Tolkien's story, there weren't more than two of them. Azog is dead already. Um, but uh, but anyway, um, it would it would it would be the simplest choice in the world uh, to say like ah oh, you know Azog, Bolg, whatever. Let's just put them together, or like you know make one of them the Great Goblin. It, it, it would be easy. We t- we talked about that way back when. Make Azog the Great Goblin who gets killed at the beginning, and then Bolg, his son, who comes back. You've got the vengeance plot in a in a neat little you know nutshell right there. The fact that they are complicating this, the fact that they are introducing so many Goblin characters. And I don't put too much into the, the, the parts that I find myself most skeptical of in those descriptions are those like like the, like the one that you read the Grinaw one the you know the disgruntled goblin or whatever. Um, I, I, it, to me, that kind of sounds like it could be fluff um, mm-hmm. and something that is not necessarily reflected in the main story of the of the of the actual film itself. I, as I say, I I have not found that these kinds of um, that these kinds of movie studio blurbs and descriptions. I have not find found a very high correlation between uh, between um, studio blurbs and you know, thoughtful and excellent analysis of the film in question. Like, I just, I have not found that, so I'm not necessarily looking to find it here. Um, but, but again, the mere fact that they are expanding these things, not just, not just maintaining, but expanding the goblin roles, and I think likely to expand the goblin roles, and therefore, um, it sounds to me, I am, I am, I am drawing, uh, well, I am drawing a conclusion, um, but I'm going to anyway suggest a conclusion. Um, based on the evidence that we have so far about the orcs and goblins, and that is that Peter Jackson and company might be planning to take an additional step forward from what they did in the Lord of the Rings films. In the Lord of the Rings films, they uh, wanted us to be able to differentiate among the different kinds of orcs. They didn't want the orcs just to be, um, you know, like, just to all look alike on screen. They wanted us to be able to recognize and tell the difference between the Uruk High uh, and the Orcs of Mordor and the Orcs of the Misty Mountains. Um, it sounds like now they're taking a further step forward. What they didn't have really in any of them in the film, in the Lord of the Rings films, were any actual character development among any of the Orcs and Goblins. Um, much less so than in the books, for instance. As you say, Shagrat and Gorbag, um, though they only get part of a chapter... 
um, get actually quite a bit of development. Um, and that is greatly re- reduced in the films. Grishnak and Ugluk in the in, in taking Marion Pippin across uh, Isengard also get quite a fair bit of development, and we we come to understand them and their characters a little bit better. Um, we don't get that in the films either. Yeah. Uh, so I think they're going to take... It sounds to me like they're at least toying with taking the next step and actually giving us orc characters that we can recognize, which are developed, and whose stories we might actually come to care about, which then leads me to uh, to the, my, my next step, which is, are they going to go even, in fact, one step further than that? Are they going to tell the stories of the orcs in such a way as to actually invite sympathy for the situation of the orcs in question. And I think that this situation, the orc, the, uh, the orc and dwarf rivalry and uh, cycle of vengeance is something which does at least open that up. And, you know, and Dave, some of the comments that you made yourself also suggest that, um, and 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 open the door for that. I mean, you know, like for instance, if we're going to get the you know, say the death of Azog, uh, or if or the redeath or whatever of Azog, mm-hmm. um, and then Bolg is upset about that, and we see him coming back and seeking vengeance in the battle of five armies, are we going to get? Are we as as the audience going to get a shred of sympathy? Are we going to get a shred of, um, you know, the, the, uh, 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 compassion? Even yeah. we can understand what's going on with Bolg. I, I kind of uh, what is driving him. I kind of agree. I mean, I agree in principle with that, and I and I think actually that the Hobbit is not a bad place to do that, particularly the the Great Goblin Goblin Town scene, because because I think that's already there. You know what I mean? Like these guys aren't presented as the goblins as we encounter them. Are they're you know the narrator describes them as wicked and evil and contemptible and yet the the interaction that we get with them is they're 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 fearful and reactionary you know what i mean they're not like oh hey we captured us some dwarves let's let's torture them but rather they're they're the dwarves are accused of crimes and the and the goblins seem fearful of them now that could just be sort of grandstanding you know um, uh trying to establish a uh, a justification for um right. for mistreating right. them but still like i don't know i i find the the goblins at least a little sympathetic there cuz they're you know they're 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 they they at least on the surface sound like they're reacting like oh well you guys are spies and thieves and murderers and we got to protect ourselves and blah blah blah. I actually I, I personally think reading the descriptions anyway, if if these descriptions that have been released are the way things are executed on screen, I actually think they're making them less sympathetic. <laughs> like the 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 great goblin sounds like doesn't sound sympathetic at all. Like. If he's no. really as sort of grotesquely obese and evil and tyrannical uh, as he's described, the audience isn't going to care at all if he's murdered. And Bolg is described as being um, uh, as as pretty pretty awful and evil. You know, torturing is his hobby, um, and Aslog is described <laughs> as being pretty evil. So. <laughs> Not to mention a zombork. Yes. Um. <laughs> so, so on the, I, I, I come. I agree in principle that I, I definitely agree that they're going to expand their characterizations of orcs, and that we're going to have orcs and goblin characters uh, that 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 recur, and that 
regardless of whether the audience actually sympathizes with Bolg that his father was killed or vice versa or whatever, that, that, that will at least be an element that will be presented to us as that person's motivation. Maybe we will say, right. yeah, well, you're still a pretty evil guy. I don't really care, but you know, or he did, he totally had it coming, but, um, right. Yes. And I mean, I, I, I also, I don't think that they will go so far as to actually make us torn, you know, like, yes. oh, like, you know, we're, we're sort of secretly hoping the goblins win the battle of five armies. <laughs> I don't think we're going to go there. Um, but at least to ha- to give them comprehensible motivations for their actions. Right. Um, motivations that people can relate to, even if they don't like the characters and even right. if they don't want good things to happen to them. Um, and, I, uh, and I think that's and, fair and, enough. And again, and, so to me, this is why this is why I go towards B, because I think that uh, my guess is that the thing they're going to really play up is the vengeance thing, um, and I agree. It, it doesn't sound like any you know the Great Goblin is going to be anybody's favorite guy, um, and that we're going to have like a big personal stake, or even that 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 Bulger Azog would have a great personal stake in it. But I do think that it would be, uh, and also the other thing that I'm thinking is. Here's the other thing that influences me to say Thorin is another <clears throat> another vacuum in the book that I think could not be allowed to stand as a vacuum uh, in the film is the vacuum of Thorin's actions. Thorin does almost nothing for most of the book. Yeah. Um, he really is in the background. It's Gandalf and Bilbo. Um, Thorin is present, um, and he sometimes has an important talking role. But as I mean, if you make a list of actions which Thorin performs, in particular, you make a list of uh, actions which Thorin does, which distinguish him as a leader and make him stand out from other from from the rest of the characters. It's got nothing. There, there are some things on that list. But it's very few. The thing with the trolls is one of the biggest ones. That is where he stands up and he actually has a good fight with the trolls before he's captured. Um, Thorne comes ac- across well, though he's unarmed, uh, in, the, in, the, in the confrontation with the trolls. Um, but after that, it's a long time coming. I mean, he has the other sword, right? He has, uh, he has Orchrist standing next to Gandalf wielding Glamdring, fighting back the goblins when they're coming in. But there, the emphasis even there is on the sword, not on Thorin. Yeah. I mean, it could have been anybody holding it. It's the sword they're afraid of. Um, so Thorin, you know, Thorin can't be that invisible. I mean, especially with the way in which it seems pretty clear they're going to be making, you know, Thorin's character with this sort of weight of responsibility from the past and this, this like, I've got to live up to the fame of my forefathers and I am the king in exile. Like, I'm the crappy king who, like the wannabe king who doesn't have a kingdom and has failed to recover a kingdom and I need to prove myself and, um, you know, and I'm in tension with Gandalf and uh, I I'm in relationship with Bilbo, who is, so, you know. So would you expect I, I, then? I, I think he's going to need to do more. So would you would you expect then that what will happen is that Gandalf will intervene and rescue them, and that in the ensuing chaos, Thorin kills? Because I mean, part of the problem here is he's captured. Yeah. Yes. And and if he can break free of his bonds and kill the orcs himself. I mean, he basically becomes a superhero. So what you would expect is that that they will be captured and powerless. Gandalf will intervene and free them. And then in the ensuing chaos, Thorin will strike the finishing blow. So so in some sense that it's not a dramatic – it's not a dramatic change to the scene. It's still ultimately Gandalf saved their butts. 
but yeah. but it just happens to be that that in the in the chaos of of in confusion the finishing blow on the great goblin is thorin's as opposed to gandalf's which which is entirely plausible yeah it, basically basically yes i mean i kind of suspect um, I mean, again, because see, in the, the the thing about one of the big differences between the the narrative as it's told in book form and the mm-hmm. narrative as it's going to be told in movie form, is the continual presence in the mind of the audience of all of the characters. They're all right there. You're looking at them on screen. Yeah. So. It, it's easy for characters to drop out and do nothing. It's easy to, you know, like uh, the, the rescue by by Gandalf. Gandalf does everything. He, the, everybody else does literally nothing. They're there in chains until Gandalf appears and says, "Come this way," and they come. You couldn't have that. That can't happen exactly like that on screen. You yes. can't have uh, fourteen idle characters standing there watching while Gandalf does something and then just following him when he says, "Follow me." This is one of the reasons why. You know, you've got the fundamental thing about uh, Peter Jackson having to differentiate the dwarves from each other. Yeah, you can you can afford to have nobody be able to tell Ori from Nori because they disappeared. You don't. You're right. not asked to think about them. It's actually leader, your attention is focused on others. I think a, I think a good example of this is the sequence um, in the Fellowship of the Ring film. Uh, where they, where they sort of, they, where they're escaping from the chamber of Mazarbal, and there's this, there's this, the, the way they execute it's a little weird because there's this point where Gandalf's like, you know, um, Aragorn, I need you to lead them on, and Aragorn's like, okay, and then they take off running together, and you're like, wait, I thought Aragorn was going to lead them. What's Gandalf doing? <laughs> why, is he, why did he just, why did he just hand things off to Aragorn and then run along and keep doing and keep leading anyway? It's like you, you right. kind of realize, oh, what he's saying is if something happens to me, lead them on. Or or whatever, but right. in the book, it's a little it's a little more sense. Like it makes a little more sense, uh, yes. you know, because what Gandalf's doing is sending the party along and running back to confront the whatever it is in the chain, you know, that's that's yeah. pursuing yeah. them. Uh, on screen, though, it looks weird because he says, "Lead them on," and then you're just staring at him. He's and you're like, "Why? You're right there. You you didn't right. go anywhere." <laughs> so I, I think it's I think that's a reasonable point. Um, and I think I think you have a good point about uh, the the, the Thorin needs to be more active. Um, I, I'm not convinced it needs to be here because I what I personally think is going to happen if Azog really is going to be chasing the party, I think Thorin's going to kill him at some point. I think there will be a confrontation yeah. with with Azog and his orcs, and Thorin's going to kill him, and that's going to be the inciting event for 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 example Bolg or someone like that. I mean, it could happen differently, but I think that's that's another possibility. We also talked about him being at the the spider battle. Maybe he'll be. Um, um, uh, fighting the spiders alongside Bilbo, so um, I don't think it necessarily needs to be here. On the other hand, I think that the way that we've described the scene with with Gandalf, you know, intervening to rescue them and at least to disrupt the the proceedings enough that the dwarves can free themselves, I don't think. I think that's that's a actually very subtle change to the scene that um, um, that. That that I think most purists would be okay with. I think there will be some some ab there will be some absolutists. Um, for example, I don't know if she's still listening. Sandra Hall 
mentioned that she thinks that um, she thinks she actually feels that uh, that it's important that the dwarves be impotent, so that when Gandalf has to leave them at the edge of Mirkwood, edge of Mirkwood, there's a crisis. You know, if the if the dwarves have already proven that they pretty much can get along without Gandalf, you know, that they fight off foes and stuff, uh, then when Gandalf has to leave them, well, you know, they'll be like, all right, well, you know, see ya, we're we're good, we got this. <laughs> so I think that's I think that's maybe the one thing that's in tension with this idea that on the one hand you're right. They need to build up Thorin a little bit more. He can't be nearly as impotent as he is. On the other hand, the dwarves need to be somewhat impotent. Otherwise, otherwise, one, there's not a, not an opportunity for Bilbo to to step up, and two, they wouldn't be in a panic about Gandalf leaving them at the edge of Mirkwood, right? Right. So. Right. Yeah. Um, though, again, even how that's going to happen, I mean. Again, Thorin's character, the development of Thorin's character, as it is obviously going to happen in the film, and again, as it happened in Tolkien's revisions too, Thorin's character is very differently developed in the quest of Erebor. Mm -hmm. And so when we kind of project forward, you think of the conversations that we are given between Thorin and Gandalf uh, in the different drafts of the quest of Erebor, and you think about what would that look like projected – what would that Thorin Oakenshield look like projected forward to the edge of Mirkwood? It's going to, in fact, sound different, um, and it creates a different situation. Um, whereas, like, yeah, you have on the one hand the dwarves all being like, oh, Gandalf, don't leave. We're useless without you. <laughs> I, I, I don't think Thorin Oakenshield in the film, I don't think Thorin Oakenshield of the Quest of Erebor says that. Um, I think that there is part of him even, like, in fact, the more useful Gandalf is, the more necessary Gandalf is to them, the more he would rather like him to go, I would suspect. Um, because he is his rival, because he feel you know, I mean, it's, Thorin wants to establish himself and to prove himself. And this, of course, leads perfectly into the issues that Thorin has later on um, uh, with uh, negotiating with people. Um, because, again, he has this inflated view of himself uh, and you know his desire to prove himself and to establish himself. So, anyway, um, that's, uh, that's all... I mean, now, it, none of this stuff actually means or proves that Thorin is going to do it. But I'm, 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 I'm going to go with Thorin uh, in the interest of. I think it's entirely having, reasonable. Yeah, of 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 of. of I building, don't think you've uh, completely uh, lost let, it yet. Let's give Thorin a moment. Um, and and yeah, as I said, I, I I I would just clarify. I don't think that it at all means that Gandalf doesn't rescue them. Gandalf easily could still be the one who you know who comes in and saves them. But again, the rest of them aren't going to stand around watching with, while this happens. Yeah. Um, and especially if the uh, if the great goblin is going to be as much of a you know so like super obese dilettante as they seem to be suggesting he's going to be, then. Uh, then the killing of him is rather superfluous, much more so than in the book. In the book, he has just... uh, This is when they find... Gandalf kills the Great Goblin to save Thorin's life in the book. Um, And this is something that that people often kind of forget, um, is that... uh, Let's see, so... He's talking to Thorin, and then they find the sword. Also, he has not explained this, says one of the goblins, and he hands that, he hands him Orchrist. Um, and that's when he says, murderers and elf friends, slash them, beat them, bite them, gnash them. Uh, and uh, he's in such a rage that he jumped off his seat and himself rushed at Thorin with his mouth open. So he is just about to rip Thorin to pieces as Thorin is standing there chained up uh, when Gandalf uh, 
uh, when the great fire went poof, and there's yammering and croaking and gibbering, and uh, then a sword flashed, and it goes right through the great goblin as he stood dumbfounded in the middle of his rage. Um, again, if... Uh, uh, it, so anyway, yeah, I think it, it, it changes the situation greatly. Um, the, and there's... If the Great Goblin is going to be this, you know, really fat, cruel, luxurious, um, and possibly comical, as I mentioned earlier, character, um, then he is not necessarily going to be an immediate threat who has to be neutralized by the rescuer. So, yep. Anyway. So B, I'm going B. Uh, uh, votes from people here, and I would say, by the way, uh, uh, for those of you who haven't yet, do go and uh, like our. Riddles in the Dark Predictions Facebook page. Uh, we have about 100 people who have checked in there and have been making votes. Uh, you have your opportunity to make your own votes heard on all of our conundra and our conundra and riddles so far. Um, so um, uh, do uh, do definitely suggest uh, what you think. So uh, tell us now, what do you think? Uh, a, B, C, or D? Remember, A is Gandalf, like in the book. B is Thorin, like I've been arguing. C is Bilbo, or somebody else kills him. And D is he doesn't die. Um, so you go, go ahead and vote, you guys. Tell us what you think. Um, oh, I've talked Daniel over. All right, victory is mine. <laughs> the battle for the heart and mind of Daniel Hill and I have won. Uh, there we go. By the way, I, <laughs> I wanted to... Um, <laughs> Good job, Brendan. Stick yeah, with exactly, it, buddy. Yes. Brendan Kyer sticking to his guns, is voting his twelfth A. I think that is a record, Brendan. I think you are our leading. Uh, you are you have you have firmly uh, out Mark Fisher. Mark Fisher here. So very good. Yes, I would. I would like to say um, uh, uh, to your credit, Brendan, um, for the last riddle on on the the Eagles. Um, you know, obviously, Corey and I were pretty strongly in the camp of they're not going to go to the Irie, but uh, Father Roderick has convinced me otherwise. It's too oh, yeah? late. I already stated my answer, but Father Roderick was like, Father Roderick's like, oh, of course they're going to go. Like, there, there's no way they'll miss out on that chance of doing the awesome, like, 48 frames per second 3D eagle flight to the Irie. And like the awesome visuals that they could have of the dwarves on the cliffside and the nest and stuff. And he's like, they can totally do it in plenty of time. You know, it won't take that long. And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. I, I think you still got plenty of opportunity for visuals, uh, you know, with the flight itself. You know, I don't think you need the iries for the visuals. Um, and, and especially if the Carrick is going to be, I mean, you could get some, some, basically replace that with panorama from atop the Carrick shots. No, no, no. No, not convinced. Not convinced. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still going with I think it was B. Uh, last time. My Brandon, <laughs> Brandon Minnick said he was going to go with D. He mysteriously vanishes, but, I'm, but he's going with B instead now. <laughs> All right. I don't know. I, I, think, have, I, I think mysteriously vanishes was, uh, was a good answer. Mysteriously vanishes would be Kind of interesting, um, <laughs> though <laughs> it doesn't. It's hard to imagine uh, the you know the great goblin reappear. You know, in, in what context is he going to reappear later on? I mean, are we going to get him in the Battle of Five Armies? I mean, you know, maybe they're wrong about him being this like you know super obese sort of. I don't know, uh, but maybe not. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. 
It's a little hard. A little hard for me to see that. But maybe. Maybe. All right. Well, good. I actually have to run here. Yep, so let's wrap this up. To go to a, you know, a three-hour episode here today. Mm-hmm. Um, By the way, you but, owe us a uh, bunch of conundrum answers, Corey. Oh, yes, I do owe you a bunch of conundrum answers. Okay, mm-hmm. I will uh, I will definitely submit those. Good. Do you, yeah, you haven't me? even done the talking – you haven't even done the talking purse one yet. Oh, no. No. no t- <laughs> and, and in fact, here, do you want to do an official for the record rundown of, your, of the conundrum right now? We could do it Yeah, right sure. Number one, okay. will Gollum leave his cave in the Misty Mountains before the end of the first film? You already said yes. Yes. Number yes. two, will there be a talking purse in The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey? No. Sadly, no. For the record, Mark Fisher said yes. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I would hope so. Number three, will Bilbo and the dwarves make it to Lake Town before the end of The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey? Yes. Number four, will we see Legolas shield well, surf? Let, let me let me let me just clarify that first. Um, yes. If by make it to Lake Town we mean like come out of the barrels, like I don't think we're going to meet Lake Town. I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time. We there. meant geographically. Gonna... Will they geographically? Bar- yes. Will their barrels will they arrive bump at up the shores against... of the Long yes. Lake? Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes. Number four, and um, I still think so, even after the trilogy announcement. No, I agree, and I I I, I generally think that they're not going to change anything about the. The film, uh, the first film. So number four, will we see Legolas shield surf in The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey? This one I do think was affected by the trilogy announcement. Yes. I, um, no. I no. bitterly regret my yes answer. <laughs> <laughs> number five, number five, uh, will they eventually make a sequel bridge film? Um. Theoretically, you said yes to this, but yeah, no, I did. I, I, I still say yes to. I, I, I do still say yes to that. Well, okay. I think I, I would I change my yes, yes to no. I will say yes, okay. but I will qualify it with. Uh, it depends upon how long Christopher Tolkien lives and what the uh, opinions of his heirs will be. That is to say, because I don't think it would happen for a little while. I think that there would be a gap in time that is real-world time between the Hobbit films and a gap film if there were one. Yep. Um, and if during that time Christopher Tolkien were to pass away and the question of Silmarillion film rights were to come into question, I would suspect that something like The Children of Hurin would rise to the top of the list above a possible uh, bridge film. Oh, that's um, interesting. So that's, that's, my, that's, my, uh, that's my kind of footnote on my yes answer barring uh barring a miracle such as the the, no i'm not calling christopher Tolkien's death a miracle uh i'm I'm saying barring barring the miracle that would be the opening up of the potential of silmarillion filming rights um uh, uh, a prospect which is inescapably connected, of course, with Christopher Tolkien's death, as never while that man lives will that occur. Um, I guess that is why it's just one of the stable facts of the universe. Gravity will reverse itself first. Um, anyway, uh, but anyway, barring that, um, yes, I would say yes, there will be. Okay. Will the opening line of the book, In a Hole in the Ground, There Lived a Hobbit, appear in The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey? Yes. All right, good. That's that's what we've all said. Number seven, will Bilbo hallucinate on screen during the dwarf song at Bag End? Now, by hallucinate on screen, we what mean, do we mean exactly? We mean, we mean, you know, like the song carries him away um, 
uh, in the book that it describes him having visions of whatever. And and the question we had was, will we see this? Will we the will we the audience experience this on screen? Will we see him seeing visions uh, and see the visions that he's having? So in other words, will we see the visions that he's having? Yeah. Yeah. Will 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 we get flashbacks to the Lonely Mountain and stuff during the song, or maybe right after the song? Or will the song scene largely just be a group of dwarves singing, standing around in the room singing? That's a hard one. Yeah. It is a hard one because it's a long song. And if they do much of it, which it seems quite likely that they could, given the prominence that they were giving to that song in the trailer, mm-hmm. um, it does seem that they could basically use that as an opportunity for recap, essentially. Now, if we just get flashbacks to... Smaug taking down the Lonely Mountain, I'm not sure that necessarily qualifies as seeing Bilbo's enchantment being depicted on film, because then it would seem to me more like the memory of Thorin and the dwarves. Mm -hmm. um, Recalling um, that and basically having then visual cues to accompany the words of the song in order to set the stage, which is of course exactly how Thorin uses the song in the book. Um, you know, when Bilbo says, "Isn't somebody going to tell me what it's all about?" and he says, "Didn't you hear our song?" Right? You know, he thought that that was enough of an explanation of what the story is and 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 why they're doing what they're doing. Yep. Um, so, but again, that doesn't necessarily. So if we get flashbacks to Spaug attacking the Lonely Mountain, it wouldn't necessarily convince me that we're seeing Bilbo being enchanted. Um, I'm hmm. let's 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 say the interpret proper interpretation of this question is: Will we get essentially flashbacks during the song? Okay. If we if that's the question, then I will say yes. All right. Fair enough. Um, conundrum number eight, will the riddle game be one uninterrupted scene? And, and I will add to this, Father Roderick pointed out this weekend, they, they, um, Andy Circus is quoted as saying yeah. that they filmed it straight through 13 minutes. Yes. Um, yes. And I was thinking about that statement by Andy Circus, and I am not sure that that necessarily convinces me that it's going to be shown in 13 uninterrupted minutes. Yep. Um, I think that's reasonable. But Father Roderick because, went with yes, just for your yeah. information. He he's, yeah. he thinks it would be awesome. He's I think it was kind of a hope answer. Like He thinks that right. if they could pull that off, it would be a great scene. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with yes for very similar reasons. That they have the opportunity to do that scene as a real centerpiece, a centerpiece of something concerning which we have spoken very little in this series so far, which is Bilbo's relationship with the ring. Um, And because that scene is in many ways not only a centerpiece of the first part of this story, of the Hobbit story, but it is also a cornerstone of the Lord of the Rings story, which is going to follow. And so I can imagine Peter Jackson making the choice, which he doesn't really do in other circumstances, to say, hey, let me just roll out an un- a 13 minutes of uninterrupted scene would be mm-hmm. remarkable. Yep. Um, but it seems to me possible that they would find that scene sufficiently remarkable to do it. So I'll say yes. All right. I like it. I like it. All right. Last one. Is it actually Saruman who releases the Nazgul? 
Nope. Nope. I think that Saruman is going to be much more... Uh, uh, he's going to be much more firmly in the closet than that. I don't yes. think we're going to see Saruman acting explicitly as an agent of evil at this point. Um, we might get a, like, you know, some elements... Uh, it, it's possible we could even get, like, you, you know, some Emperor Palpatine, like, come over to the dark side elements with Saruman. This to actually see him having a crisis of faith which leads him to uh, to to begin to turn to evil or to see him in in the internal conflicts between him and Galadriel and Gandalf um, to be sort of beginning to emerge more and more in his own thinking. That is, you know, so basically I could see the Saruman dynamic in the story being one of like how he got to where he was at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring. Yep. I could see that happening. I could also see happening he's already there but he is still totally in secret because Gandalf is his his faith in Saruman the White in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring film is touching, like it's really adorable. Um, it's and totally unlike anything we get from Gandalf in the book. You know this like I will go to Saruman the White, the wisest of my order. He will don't worry, Frodo. He will know what to do, right? I mean, and which is just totally unlike anything Gandalf in the book would say. And so if Gandalf is supposed to be starting the Lord of the Rings film with that level of confidence in Saruman. Um, I think that there is that he's going to be pretty deeply concealed. Um, mm-hmm. Either his struggles are going to be concealed, or if he's evil, what they're going to play on it, and I think this could be done quite effectively, is basically playing on this, the dramatic irony that the Lord of the film, the Lord of the Rings films have created. That mm-hmm. is, all of the audience know that he's evil, but nobody else does. So he could say and do things which nobody else, Gandalf, Galadriel, Elrond, none of them suspect to be maliciously motivated. And, but which uh, we all and, interpret that but way. But which we all see through. Um, and, and that could create some really fun situations, I think. Um, so I could see them doing that. I could see them doing the like slow movement of Sauron to the dark side thing. Um, but in either case, I don't think we're going to see Saruman acting as any kind of overt um, or even strongly acting covert um, agent of uh, evil in the story. Yep. Cool. Well, thank you. I will. Uh, let's uh, let's wrap this up so you can get out of here. Yep. Um, uh, let's thank all of our live listeners who helped us brainstorm questions this morning and, um, uh, and who stuck around for the whole episode. Let's thank, yeah, you guys are troopers. You guys are, you guys are an invaluable part of this, uh, of this whole venture. Um, and, uh, and, and, and thank you, thank them and apologize for the, um, for the technical difficulties and apologize to the listeners that I'm on, um, Mac, MacBook Pro internal microphone as opposed to <laughs> yeah. on my headset. Um, we'll get it worked out b- before next time. Let's thank Trish for all of her hard work in helping us prepare the notes and for, for standing in for part of this morning. Um, yes. And, uh, and, uh, of course, to, to all of our analysts and everybody who's participating and all of you, our listeners, um, and Corey, take us away. Okay. Thank you for listening. Godspeed. <laughs>